Well, too late. We started the podcast now. <laughs> Enough of this uh, chit chat. We're getting started. Uh, among uh, coworkers who enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Stop talking about culture. <laughs> okay. Sorry. What kind of a podcast are you running Stop here, Jeff? Stop talking about <laughs> fictitious stories. We're here to talk about true tales and actual facts and histories. Or maybe not. Uh, welcome to A Little Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And I say that faster each time. My name is Jeff Milo. Today, I'm joined by Mary Graham. Hello. And across the table from us are two collection developers from the adult section. We have Pietro. Hello. And Drew. Hello. Uh, and we're just here. Well, what are we here to do, Mary Graham? <laughs> We are sure here to talk about developing those collections. We're here to talk about My nonfiction. My favorite thing. And, and we're here to talk about nonfiction. Give some love to a section and not a genre, right? No. Not a no. genre, but the part of the library that isn't associated with escapism. That's true. That I would say that if, is fair. If that is or isn't your thing. Uh, and Mary Graham develops the collection for the youth section. I do. I am from zero to nine ninety nine. Master of exactly of all the Dewey numbers, uh, as long as we have them. Which oh, stay, that, stay tuned, dear listener. That's, that's a episode. separate episode. But uh, uh, it's it's always a beautiful day when I get to dunk on a man so terrible he was canceled in the early twentieth century. Yeah. Do you know how bad you have to be to be canceled? as a white man in the early 20th century. Anyway. Tupac. So um, he really earned it. He <laughs> did. He did. Uh, but yeah, I select all the nonfiction for the youth section. It is a collection I inherited um, when I started working here. And it is now the love of my life, basically. I was, I was walking say. I was oh. walking through the stacks today trying to make some notes on, you know, favorites and books that I would recommend on the pod. And I was like, I just, I just love all of them. It's mm. just, I... But but it's mine, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. not in a possessive way, but in like I'm yeah. a very excited and like so you're proud exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always actually this was one of the loveliest moments I've had recently is um, patron came in yesterday, parent of three girls. Um, we actually know each other from my before library's life because. I took the kid I would nanny and she took her oldest child to mm-hmm. the same music class. So we sort of did the like squint of like, is that you? Has mm-hmm. it been, it's been five years since I've seen you? Is that you? Um, and she told me that she had picked up a book for her eldest daughter who's in second grade off of the nonfiction display that we have up right now. And it's part of a series called History Smashers. And she was like, do you have any more of these? My daughter is obsessed with these now. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I sent her home with four more. And she was like, my daughter's going to be thrilled. And nice. that is why I joined this profession. So it Aww. makes me very happy. That's so great. Can I share some tidbits about this library since I've been here since the dawn of time? Please, Please do. Jeff. And by that, I mean, I this is my childhood library. So I can tell you what it looked like. Before. Jeff is the longest serving member of the Ferndale Area District Library staff, dear not, listeners. Not only that, but I'm a 101% homegrown Ferndalian never left and this is yeah so my little footsteps have gone through here I've told tales about how I used to wander through these shelves as a five-year-old pretending that I was the Ghostbusters in the basement of the New York library <laughs> looking for a ghost around the corner uh, but we used to have by we I mean I was a 14 year old page it was uh, yours yeah we used to have a, a new book area but it was like only for the fiction. We just didn't even, wow. we just didn't even. Poor little dr- nonfiction. Poor little nonfiction is what I'm saying. So I was gonna say, uh, now that we have these great rollable carts out there in that adult area and a great area over there, I'm even just if walking by my little marketing self on my little work day, I'm always exposed to so many fascinating and wonderful looking titles, front facing, on display, we love giving love to the nonfiction section. Can you guys talk about the collections you develop? It's a race to whoever goes first. Drew. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I develop 400s, which is world language and linguistics, 500s, which are natural sciences, and 900s, which is world history and geography. Um, And a whole bunch of things qualify as history. 
They uh, sure that you, do. That you may or may not identify as such from the outside. And I also um, develop biographies. Pietro. And I do the 700s, which is broadly speaking the arts, which encapsulates a lot of things, including the fine arts, mm -hmm. crafts, photography, um, movies, music, sports, the art of sports, of course. Mm -hmm. And then I, I also collect... Uh, do collection development for the 800s, which broadly speaking is literature, but um, is a lot of essay collections, is a lot of poetry, um, a little bit of anthologies, and then I also do large print nonfiction, so that encapsulates everything. Excellent. In large print. Hee hee hee. Y'all do some of my favorite classes. Oh yeah, and so Mary Graham, you've just stated those are some of your favorites. Do you have yeah. any other little favorites since you are zero to nine? 1,000 or whatever? <laughs> um, I have a fondness for the 200s in that I enjoy reading about religion. I have a deep-seated hatred for the way the 200s are organized, which is that uh, 200 through 289 is Christianity and 290 to the end is everything else. I will remind you, Melville Dewey, Dewey yeah. you know, um, but uh, but I really enjoy the kind of books that get filed there. I like reading about like the history of religion. That's where you find biblical studies, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then the 600s are certainly immensely popular mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in youth because in in like the 600s to the 630s alone, you have human bodies, mm -hmm. uh, trucks mm -hmm. and gardening. <laughs> and those are three topics that are a big hit with the like five to 12 year old crowd. Uh, you know how many architecture enthusiasts we have here in the fine city of Ferndale? And do you know yeah. how many of those architecture enthusiasts are 10? Uh. It's a lot. So I find myself getting really excited when there's a new book that comes out about like boats and the different types of boats that exist. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. This so, isn't, this isn't uh germane to our two guests here since it's not their realm, but um I have always said that the book that converted me into loving nonfiction was uh, Larson's Devil in the White City, mm -hmm. okay. which lives in the 360s, whatever oh, the heck that the is. The 300s, my nemesis. Um, so here's the thing about the 300s is every most every subsection in it is a topic I love, but it is a kitchen sink category. Yeah. Um, and actually something that we uh, started doing in nonfiction shortly after I got here was going through the 300s and pulling anything that could be filed in the 900s, usually under American history, <laughs> because we were finding that a lot of, say, Black American history was getting pulled out. And so if you were browsing the 900s for you know a school project, you were not going to find any specifically african-american history back there and we were like we don't like that we don't want to pull that like it's yeah. american history sure. we don't want to pull that apart so um yeah but there's some things like the the 300s is mostly like social sciences mm -hmm. um and things like that which right. again fascinating so drew is there anything extra fascinating about the 900s you might add you both shared a knowing look about histories oh yeah um so i am also in a somewhat similar position in that uh, a lot of things become by virtue of of generalizing 300s that actually belong in the 900s and again like the 200s you have nine sections devoted to european history and one tenth devoted to the rest mm -hmm. of the world oh right <laughs> yeah also trying to figure out because we have so many country like specific country of the world books back there and when you go into i use the chart on uh, the interactive chart on library thing and when you go in there to to pull the code for you know okay this is a book about afghanistan uh trying to Put yourself in the mind of a 19th century guy about where things are located, like the category where countries are located, because I'm like, Syria, that's in West Asia. Asia's a continent. It's on the Western side of it. That's West Asia. Mm -hmm. And Melville Dewey is like, it's the Levant, which is <laughs> okay. I guess, but like not an easy way to find when you're going to look in the chart. So also sometimes just like, not only are these all these places squished, they're also not arranged in a way that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, natural sciences also has fun stuff like astronomy. That's fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it has all your paleontology. So if nice. you have grown up 
uh, in the Jurassic world yeah. and want to have a deeper understanding, that's mm -hmm. great. And we also have all of the fun stuff in the fine 90, 590s, which are about um, animals of all types. And some of these things are true natural histories with a nice evolutionary event. And others of them are just why you should try to be friends with an octopus if you possibly can. <laughs> I want to read that book. I want to know. I mean, I'm already on board, but but please lay out the reasons. I would I would read are. that. There are as many reasons as there are tentacles. <laughs> amazing. Um, you know, like they're just amazing. Unsurprisingly, the 590s extremely popular back in youth too, because kids are right. always like the penguin books. Where are they? Yeah, you don't <laughs> outgrow wanting to be friends. And then I feel like that very popular Lynn Trust book, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, about punctuation may or may not live in the 400s. It sure does. It does. Okay. Yeah. It's like the star of that show. I have a lot of affection for the 400s, uh, in part because... It's the wordy section. It's the word. And you know what they gave me a degree in, words. Jeff? They gave me a degree in words in both English and French. Yes. Um, and uh, But something that's cool about kids' nonfiction is that we that's where we keep our books about the history of various alphabets. Mm -hmm. So we have a really cool book, actually, about the invention of the Korean alphabet. Oh, and it's it's doing collection development for kids' stuff. Like, you know, you probably couldn't get a whole adult nonfiction book out of that, but you can get a really great mm -hmm. nonfiction picture book. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm doing my job and in the process of being like, I will buy this book for the collection, being also like, well, now I know who invented the Korean alphabet. In the 90s, mm -hmm. when I was a page, our nonfiction collection developer was, she was a very proud crocheter, very proud baker. Needless to say, the 740s, Pietro, were packed. And they Lots are, of so. stuff. That's a popular area. What is yes. that's kind of the crafty area? That's what, right? Absolutely, yes. All things You got crafts. your embroidery, you got your crocheting, mm -hmm. uh, knitting, sewing. And then, but it feels like you have fun, a fun section too. You get movies. You get, you get, uh, yes. You get, uh, yeah. What else do you get in the 700s? Theater, I think. What's do get, that? Do you get theater as well? And art history? Yes. So I neglected to mention that the 800s also have plays. I don't want anyone to get mad at me. Oh, yeah. I was going to get in there. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, in the 700s, there's a section for the theater as well. Um, the areas that I really enjoy the most from my own personal interest are um, like the fine arts, uh, like uh, painting. Ah, and photography yeah. those are the things that i feel really passionate about and like my library soapbox moment would be that that was really how i got my education in the arts was i would go to a museum i'd write down the name of an artist whose work i really liked and then i'd go to the library and look up as much as i could about that artist and just like take a deep dive and get that mm -hmm. autodidactic education in this reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the library I worked at in grad school, where this little boy, he was maybe five or six, came up to the youth desk and asked where our art books were. And I was working in a, a fairly large single branch library at the time, and we had a big nonfiction collection. Mm -hmm. um, and so I showed him, you know, over to the 700s, and he sort of looked at everything mm -hmm. with a furrowed brow, and he was like, not these, where are the big ones? And I was like, I think you want the same number, yes. but upstairs in the adult nonfiction. So we found his dad and I explained where they would want to go on the second floor. And then they came back down, they went up, they came back down to continue their browsing. And again, this like six year old child, arms full of enormous art books. That's Wonderful. exactly the kinds of like collection descriptions you would find yeah. from museums and, and you know, like a history of, of <laughs> Renaissance art. And I was like, have a great time. <laughs> Hopefully you brought a big bag that's very Exactly, <laughs> but I think that kid was like, I've got it, nobody needs to take these from me. Um, but I, one of the things I love about doing reader's advisory for children is they have usually a very strong idea of what they want. Mm -hmm. um, and not only is that helpful for actually finding them something they want, but it is hilarious to watch them very seriously be like, no, not this. This is I've 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 debated it in my mind and it is unacceptable. This is not art. <laughs> this is this is no <laughs> exactly. This is not the art I wanted. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I kept leaning into the mic because I Mary Graham had a perfect opportunity to say, Where art thou art books? And she didn't take it. But I'm gonna take it right now. Okay. But it could be a book display. Also in the eight hundreds, so explain this to me. You have Shakespeare plays. We but sure then, do. But then you'll have like 
Dave Barry and Dave Sedaris having the little comedic yes. little humorous essays. Humorous essays. And so essays. Essays live there. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So you'll find your your David Sedaris, your Dave Barry, sure. you'll find your uh What's the the other one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The other Dave, Amy Poehler, yes, Tina Fey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be like Titus Adronicus and then Tina Fey at the other end of the shelf. Yeah. Okay. And in essence, yes. Yeah. Also, the poets. We yeah. uh, we hoard a lot of poetry back in youth. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's where you find Walt Whitman. Let's talk about some books. You guys have some books on the table. Uh, Drew, could you start us off with a book? Sure. And tell us about the section it's in? Sure. So one of the many advantages to being into nonfiction is you get better at Jeopardy. Uh, Oh, it's Um, very true. And one gap that I had when I took over the 900s, which there is no excuse for, is I was not uh, at all um, familiar with early British history at all, which I have no excuse for as a, as a first generation American with family still in uh, England. Um, so anyways, a really great book that I know Mary Graham has read that came out last year was Unruly, The Ridiculous History of England's Kings and Queens by David Mitchell. Um, not the guy who wrote Cloud Atlas. This David Mitchell is actually a comedian and a television commentator. Oh, nice. um, anyways, and he goes back into Britain's prehistory and he tells it in just this very like direct but funny way. So the very, very first thing in the book is um, basically saying, there was no King Arthur, but here's why people made him up to fulfill their own psychological needs. And he basically makes a comparison to saying that, oh yes, we pretend that maybe this Roman governor was was King Arthur the same way we could pretend maybe that um, there was a real Superman, except he didn't have any superpowers and he dressed as a bat. That's not Superman, that's <laughs> Batman. That's not King Arthur, that's a Roman governor. Right. Um, so he takes a lot of good pop cultural references that are easy to access and applies them to the beginning of British history. So um, it's not just a dry history, it has fun? Wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> Nonfiction when, books having fun. When we get oh, to some of my, cause, sure. because amusing history books, those are, those are my books, those are the books for me. Nonfiction uh, isn't supposed to be fun. Wait a minute. That's a lie that we were fed in school, perhaps. Um, and that's the thing, actually, is that one of the reasons I love doing the, the kids nonfic is that it's gotten a million times better. That and might more be what it is, right? Is because then when we were children, kids nonfic wasn't fun because they were just hoping you would write that book report really well. Yeah. But now and can you can still write a book report really well from the kind of stuff that's being published that's now. Cool. You will just have a better time doing it. Nice. Uh, Pietro, tell us about that giant book at yes. the top of your stack. So this is an artist monograph by Alice Neal called People Come First, which was the exhibition catalog from a retrospective of her work at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, Alice Neal is one of my favorite painters. I find her work really fascinating. She was born in the year 1900 and died in 1984. So she saw a whole whirlwind of wow. movements and changes in our society. And she kind of had the classic story of um, was very true to her vision and lived in poverty until she was in like her late 60s and 70s. Her work started to get more heralded by second wave feminists and she became a prominence then. Um, She did like psychological portraits at a time when abstract expressionism was in vogue and she was just true to her vision and continued doing what she did. And eventually the public came around and I think now some like 40 years after her death, her work is probably more relevant and popular than ever. Thus her getting like one person shows and at the Metropolitan Museum. What do you dig about this book? So this is the most comprehensive look at her whole oeuvre that I've seen. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Mary Graham. Um, and I think- Ouvre? <laughs> there we go. She was somebody that would paint um, nude portraits of pregnant women and that was just really not being done. Uh, whatsoever. And she was drawing portraits. She moved from Greenwich Village to Spanish Harlem. So she was drawing portraits of people of color, of Spanish mothers with their children, uh, black and brown people, kind of like the the freaks of Greenwich Village. Mm. And her work's just really powerful. Mm -hmm. She had a very disarming way of she would apparently just talk to her sitters like ad nauseum until the point where they became disarmed and would become like their true selves. And she would also apparently convince them to take their clothes off in, in the process as well. Hypnotism? <laughs> sort of. Yeah. 
But yeah, feel free to, to take a look through that. It's, it's really striking the colors that she used and she just has a, a really singular voice. Um, you said an artist's monograph? Yes. That's cool. Yeah, Even so, though I don't quite understand it. <laughs> so that just means that it's uh, focusing on the work of one artist in particular. Oh, sure. Uh, it could be focused on uh, a movement or portion of their career or it, in its entirety. Okay. So this is a cool book because it has a lot of great color plates and it also has some really more like academic -y essays. And that's one of the things that I like about these coffee table books is you can take it for either. You can just look through the pictures if you want to, or you can get like a more in-depth analysis of the work and its historical context and nice. things like that. And I think that's something that I love about libraries because these big coffee table books are not cheap. Sure. So when we all burden that cost together, we all get to be enriched. I Wonderful. was just about to say that because that is something that I think about a lot in the uh, 398s, which is another reason why the 300s, despite being the pain of my existence, is also the love of my life, yeah. because 398.2 is folklore. So oh, that is yeah. where even though, okay, fairy tales are quote unquote not true, they're in nonfiction because mm -hmm. uh, certainly we are very intentional. I guess I should, I'm very intentional um, in the nonfiction that we put in the 398.2s back in youth that it is a reasonable representation of folk culture that yes. actually does exist. Right, right. Um, I took a whole class on that in grad school, which has served me really well because you learn how to evaluate like how genuine is this? Is there back matter? Is the author talking about, you know, either this is something that they grew up with as part right. of their own cultural heritage or, yeah. you know, was it shared with them with permission right. and things like that. Um, but there are some really, really lovely, enormous illustrated, you know, folklore books or mythology books. Um, one of my favorites that we have is called The Sea Ringed World. And it is a collection of sacred tales from cultures all over the Americas. Mm -hmm. So from the Arctic Circle to the bottom of what we now call South Africa and all the way back up again. Um, and it's it's a collection of tales, you know, like authorized by people who, who come from those cultures um, and put together as a way to showcase just the absolute breadth of, um, of indigenous sacred stories. Uh, so we actually keep it, um, although we're in the process in youth of eventually moving to a different categorization system. Um, we have done what's called local Dewey for some things, which is where mm. you say mine now and you decide that the numbers mean different things. Um, so we actually keep the sea ringed world in the 200s because they're sacred stories. Um, and this is another, this is one of my library soapboxes is like being very, very careful what you put in sacred versus folk tales because a lot mm. of times indigenous stories that actually are like have ceremonial purposes or sacred purposes are relegated uh to to folk tales as a means of like saying like oh but they're not mm. they're not as important when like you would never put bible stories in folk tales even though actually accurate accurately you probably could um and uh but people would probably get mad um <laughs> so so i really enjoy buying we've also got this great big collection of scottish folklore that's you know full color illustrations hardcover you know 40 dollars retail probably something that would have been way out of my pocket yeah. allowance um and yeah, it's, it's exciting to get to buy those and share them with people. Yeah. Yes. Well, tell us about a book, Mary Graham. Um, so I also am starting with a funny history book, uh, and it's called You Are History by Greg Jenner. Uh, Greg Jenner is one of my favorite public historians. I first encountered him via a podcast called You're Dead to Me, which just started a new season. So everybody run and go listen to it. And actually, after this episode, David Mitchell was just on an episode um, oh, because wow. the, the premise of You're Dead to Me is every episode you have Greg Jenner as the host. And depending on the topic, um, there's always a, a comedian and a historian. And David Mitchell was the comedian uh, on the episode about Catherine the Great of Russia. Wow. And so it is both very funny, but also you will learn a lot because it's usually an academic who is sitting there talking about medieval Irish folklore or um, the history of Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And uh, You Are History is uh, one of Greg Jenner's books for children and it is about the history of everyday life. So what do you do first thing in the morning? You wake up, history of the alarm clock. Ah, I love you it. You know, things like that. 
Um, okay. History of the toothbrush. Then, then you get dressed. History of underwear. Yeah. You know. So, um, and it's and it's funny, but it's also very rigorously researched. And this can be a, a pitfall, certainly that I remember from my own childhood is books for adults as well as children, but especially for children. Uh, this is maybe something to discuss about fact checking in nonfiction and the oh. duty or lack of legal duty thereof in publishers to ensure that nonfiction has been thoroughly fact checked. Oh, wow. We can talk about Naomi Wolf if we have time. Oh, yeah, um, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but when I am buying something, you know, by Greg Jenner, or um, we have some award-winning uh, books that are adaptations for young readers of, you know, books for adults that have won prizes. I get to like rest easy knowing that this is a very well-vetted source who knows what they're talking about, who has also made this super accessible for children and anybody trying to get better at Jeopardy. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, isn't that what the the one gentleman said that he studied like children's reference materials? One of the the James. longer uh, like running champions yeah. was because that'll get you at about the level you need for Jeopardy and yes. you can read a lot of it in and small space. And it covers space. a lot of yeah. different ground. Yep. James Holtzhauer or something along. Yeah. I will squeeze in a quick book, actually, uh, that I enjoy. Do it. Enjoyed. All right. (laughs) It's called The Wordy Shipmates, and it's by Sarah Vowell, who is kind of NPR famous, kind of a commentator, uh, This American Life, Fresh Air, but possibly famous for doing one of the voices in The Incredibles. But also an author, loves history, loves to write about history, and loves to be about 15% funny, about 15% cheeky and quippy. But The Wordy Shipmates is about the, it's it's 974. So Drew, I think that's American history. And it's about uh, what we might say the pilgrims, but I think it's Puritans coming over. And it is basically about uh, the hundred years of um, rocky relations and uh, problematic uh, exploits of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth Rock. And, and you said it's called the Wordy Shipmates. The Wordy Shipmates. That's a great title because those people never shut up and they, they loved <laughs> suing each other. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and they had high opinions of themselves and would tell you that and uh, had grandiose thoughts of their purpose and, and all cities that. on hills. All of that. Yeah. Uh, but a, if you know, around Thanksgiving time, I'm like, who the hell were these pilgrims who came over here and caused all this trouble? And I found that book and I thought it was just wonderful. Um, yeah. So where do you shipmates serve all? I can picture that cover in my mind very clearly. All of her books have that same cover. I should look up the artist. The, it looks like toy dolls who are posed in kind of a, yeah. almost like a diorama and they're little pilgrims. They look like little plastic pilgrims. Yeah. Yeah. Striking. Yeah. Drew, what else do you got? Oh, let's go to the 500s. Yay. Um, So a really recent publication that I'm currently reading right now and really loving is called A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? Ah. Uh, And this book is written by a husband-wife duo. Uh, Kelly Wiener-Smith is a behavioral ecology professor at Rice University, and her husband, Zach, is an online cartoonist. Um, So it is a lightly illustrated assessment of why we probably should not rush to leave the planet. (laughs) Um, They basically say that um, leaving Earth, if our if our climate goes up two degrees Celsius for Mars would be like leaving a messy room so you could live in a toxic waste dump. Comes with a ton (laughs) of fun illustrations of some of the things that can go wrong and kind of undoes all the techno utopianism that seems to be everywhere that we're gonna be saved by moving to a place where where the soil is toxic and there's no atmosphere, Um, but does it in a really fun graphic way. Um, Yeah, the New York Times described the book as a romp um, and this is another book where the word cheeky is highly applicable. I can't wait to read that when you are done. And this is my favorite thing about nonfiction because I, I first of all, I love that subtitle because I'm like, yeah, have we really thought this through? I will be dying on the planet where I was born. Thank you. It will be by choice if necessary. Um, has nobody else seen that Doctor Who episode? <laughs> it's the ultimate um, question in science or not, uh, not can we, but should we? It is yeah. the immortal question. Thanks, Mary Shelley. Um, posed by Mary Shelley and, also and Jurassic, Park. Jurassic Park's Ian Malcolm, yes. Um, but 
I normally, I don't spend a ton of time in the 500s for my, uh, for my own personal reading. But then sometimes something comes along and you're like, well, mm -hmm. guess who's about to become a 500s girl? Yes, yes we have to remain open-minded. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of really great nonfiction feels like a super fun conversation mm -hmm. with somebody that you've just bumped into and they're sharing what they've thought through. Mm -hmm. um, and you get to lead into that expertise and both like enjoy the content, but also enjoy the way it's communicated. And this is a fun conversation book. Every section of it, you're like, wow. Yeah. We are helping you have good conversation starters at your dinner parties, folks. Uh, what's your next book, Pietro? So I think this is a good segue because one of the things that I really liked about Dawood Bay's on photographing people and communities, which is in the 779s, which is where photography lives, is that he manages to present um, this sort of like masterclass on photography in a way that is very accessible in these kind of like bite-sized chunks. The chapters are all one to three pages long. It's not filled with jargon. And he breaks it down in a way that um, makes you kind of want to go outside and start taking photos. Um, but he gets into a lot of like going into communities that are not your own, going into places that are not your own. And what's the way to do that in a respectful way? And how do you navigate that space? How do you navigate your interaction with the person whose photo that you're taking? Um, and a lot of stuff like that. And um, I really enjoy his work a lot. He's a professor of uh, photography, I believe at Columbia in Chicago. Um, and he first came up prominence with a series of uh, photos that he took in Harlem. And he brings up the point that he's from New York City, but he's from Queens. So him entering into Harlem was a new space for him. So he didn't just start going there and taking photos. He hung out in the community. He got to know people. He went to the barbershops. He went to the restaurants. And he talks about that process. And as I was saying, like the, the proper way to navigate that in a way that's respectful respectful both to the subjects and the community. Right, because how are you gonna know? Now maybe that's not the right question, but you can't just walk in and be there for five minutes and take right. a picture. It's not gonna mean anything to you. Like you have to develop the actual appreciation for what you're about to take a picture of, yes. be it a person or the place. And that shows up in the work itself. Yeah. Which is also really another thing similar to the Alice Neal monograph, you can look through this book and just flip through and take a look at the photographs because they're amazing. And you can also get the insights into his working process and his history and like the historical precedents for his work and stuff like that. Nice, I like the design of it too. Yeah, it was put out by Aperture, which is like probably one of the more highly regarded uh, photographic magazines and it's been going on for I think over a century at this point. Wow. So this is the Photography Workshop series. And this interestingly came into the collection because somebody called when I was at the reference desk mm -hmm. and they said they were looking up uh, this book on mel.org, the statewide system. And it was showing that we had a copy, but I was showing that we didn't have a copy because it was lost. And when I saw there was only one other copy in the system and I looked up the photographer's work, I was like, we really should have this. So thank you to that patron who inspired me to order this for our library again. Which is a great story about calling us or coming to see us and asking us, even if you don't see it listed mm -hmm. on Melcat, you know, asking us if we can buy something, telling us what you would like to see. I always, yes. um, I also collect for uh, world languages in the youth department. And, you know, for our families who speak Spanish at home or German or Arabic or any other language that we collect, like I'm always telling them, like, tell me what you want to read. Like, and they'll come yes. in and say like, okay, like my son would now like to read Percy Jackson in Spanish. And I'm like, on it, we will have that for you next week. Yeah. And because we want these things to be used, right? right? A library is for all of you, is for all of these users. Um, and... Yeah. And that's that's why I get really excited when people are like, "Oh, I discovered this, you know, this series that you have, and now my daughter wants to read all of them." Or, um, yeah, it's it's that connection. I love um, that reciprocal giving by both the library and the community exactly, too. It's a given exactly. thing. Exactly. Uh, it's it's just really strong community bonds. Speaking of books that you hope the community uses, Mary Graham, what's another book that you hope the community so uses? I'm going to talk about two as a pair. Um, a First Guide to Cats and A First Guide to Dogs uh, by Dr. This John Bradshaw. lives in the 600s. This lives in the 600s because yeah. Dewey, in his negative wisdom, uh, has put domestic animals separately from wild animals, which 
If you are a grown human thinking about animal husbandry, may or may not make sense. But when you are seven, makes no sense at all. So, um, but this uh, this pair of books, a first guide to cats and first guide to dogs, um, is written by a, a veterinary scientist, uh, and he basically has like written they're they're short little books, um, but they're kind of like like beginning chapter books and it's a, a story about like a day in the life of a dog or a day in the life of a cat but it includes all of this really rich information about how they perceive the world or what they might be thinking when you leave for the day so uh i am i am a cat person i have a cat i did a lot of research before i got my cat so there wasn't a lot in the cat book that i didn't already know but for the book on dogs like dogs use their sense of smell the way that humans see hmm. that yep. is so much about how they perceive the world which is why when you take them on their little walks you really do need to let them sniff around because that is how they are learning everything um and i did not realize the extent to which that was true until i read this book and i think it's a really great way um especially for kids who like me would have been more reluctant nonfiction readers to be like well here's a little story like you know here is this cat named sadie here is Sadie's life. Here is all about Sadie. Um, and uh, and they've got little black and white illustrations. And But it's also, you know, written by this scientist who has devoted his whole career to studying domestic animals and domestic animal behavior. Um, and so those are relatively new. Uh, and I think they've been in near constant circulation since we've gotten them. Aww. Yeah. And uh, pictures? There are pictures in them. Cute pictures, yes. I bet. Yes. I'm going to squeeze in one more pick. And um, so my last one was in Drew's section. This one is in Pietro's section. Okay. The call number is 780 because it deals with music. In fact, very much so because it's called How Music Works by David Byrne. Excellent. You know, I go through your section, Pietro, and I see that 781 feels like the heart of the music. That's where I see books about bands. Right. But music kind of trapes over into 782 and 780. This isn't. Yes. This is kind of a unique one. It's an ambitious one. It's about the. It's not about the history of music. It's about what. It's about our the history of our relationship to music. Ooh. What music does to our brain, does for our heart, does for our culture, and how our interaction with it changed slightly or drastically with the introduction of recording it, actually, uh, and then packaging it and then you know keeping it like as a fixed object right us uh and then david byrne obviously a very cerebral very quirky person uh also has a great book about bicycles which lives somewhere in the 800s seven something i don't know off the top he's got a bicycle diaries books and he visits detroit pretty prominently in that visits detroit yes he does uh and bikes around any yeah but not to go on a tangent how music works that is literally what it's about by david byrne of the talking heads 780 is that the book that where he discusses like the socioeconomic conditions uh yeah like he talks about the lower east side like in the punk movement Mm -hmm. yeah it's deep diving it's, yeah. it's basically an anthropology book. Yeah. Nice. Drew. Okay. So one thing about the 900s is you can go very, very broad, um, and you can learn the history of history and why we history ourselves. <laughs> or you can go much more specific, and we have a lot of great books that are Detroit-specific. Yes. And the book that I now give to people who say they're new to the area is Detroit in 50 Maps by Alex B. Hill, uh, 977.434. Um, so this book is very true to its title. It is, depending on how you cut it, at least 50 maps. You might argue because of overlays, it's closer to 100 maps. And it starts out with some things that give you a good sense of why Detroit was developed as a city. It shows you like the overlay of the current map over indigenous pathways and waterways and how the resources flowed. But then it gets a lot more exciting to me personally. My favorite map in here is a map of the dog, of the most common dog names from information taken from animal grooming and training centers. And, you know, spoiler alert, the top five are Bella, Max, Charlie, Coco, and Jasmine. Um, It also will, like, show you uh, a breakdown of the city by age. Where are there more children than elderly? Where are there more elderly than children? And it'll kind of go into, briefly, over the course of two pages, how that impacts healthcare distribution, how that impacts school, how that impacts park usage. So it gives you, like, very high-level stuff. 
there is a really great map in here. So this came out in 2021 and it's based on all of the graffiti tickets written in the city of Detroit hmm. in 2020 and where they are and where they are in relationship to the Eastern Market murals. Oh. <laughs> and whether or not we can argue that the presence of these uh, corporate sanctioned murals causes an increase in in graffiti and maybe that should be ticketed differently. Another one of my favorite uh, maps is the density of Coney Island restaurants. Ooh. That's important. Yes. yes, that's a must for any new done city with, resident. Done yeah. with shading. So I feel like um, if you have an hour and you know nothing about Detroit, this is a great place to start. That's I've lived here almost all my life and I'll be taking an hour to look at that <laughs> because I love data. Yep. <laughs> Especially when it's useful data, not like what am I searching on DuckDuckGo, which doesn't really collect that data, but um, useful data, what if people named their dogs? Yeah. That's like, what the people want. And what is the function of history books in the time period where you can get timelines and data points and everything online and Wiki, Wikipedia is going to give you the most plain, simple, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. What is the point of it is context. What is the point of it is specific relevance to specific populations. And this book knows exactly who it wants to be specific to and what it, what sort of context it wants to put around those data uh, points. Yes. He, he, he. Uh, yes, Wikipedia will say, and then this happened, and then this happened. That book is saying, this happened, but then this happened, therefore this is happening. We love it. Mm -hmm. I once read a biography of Alex Chilton that was described pretty accurately as a book-length Wikipedia article. Ooh. And that was not a lot of fun, yeah. No. Just, it can be like, this happened and this is the person's name. This is what they did. Here's their interaction with them. There's just no... There's no heart, there's no connection, yeah. and there's no, it takes away from the narrative. Mm, no. Yeah, uh, that's a whole other episode. What's your uh, <laughs> other book, Pietro? So I spoke about photographers from the outside looking yeah. in and getting into community. So this is a book, uh, Renegades by Chloe Sherman, and it is 770.866. It's another photography book, which chronicles the, the queer, um, scene in San Francisco in the 90s. It's really amazing. It just came out last year and I want to give a sh special shout out to the friends because this is a book that got damaged and they were kind enough to replace it for me because Aww. it was a more expensive title. Yeah. Um, so this is really cool because Chloe Sherman was a part of the scene so she wasn't like coming at it as an interloper and that's really clear from the photographs. You're seeing people like in their cars getting ready to go out for the evening like on a, in a phone booth smoking cigarettes and somehow despite it being really specific to a time and a place San Francisco in the 90s it doesn't feel dated and I think it's sort of the aesthetic of what a lot of people are going for on social media currently wow yeah and there are a number of people in it who have gone on to be like internet famous or famous in the in the broader sense of the world uh Daniel C uh who played Max Sweeney on the L word oh, yeah, and okay. K James. Okay. Um, it's just a really fantastic book and it's it, it's good at showing the whole kind of like um, just the different manifestations of of like queer identity, especially uh, like for female and non-binary mm -hmm. folks from the introduction. There's a good kind of encapsulation where they say, what I love about Chloe Sherman's work is how she archived our queer and trans, butch, femme, and everything in between youth before we even had a language for it. And I wow. think that that encapsulates it really well. Nice. Yeah. Mary Graham, we have time for one more book if you have one. Great, I do. Um, I actually want to talk about a, an adult book that was the best nonfiction sure. I read last year. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the best nonfiction title that I read last year is called A Rome of One's Own, which is a history of the Roman Kingdom Republican Empire in 21 Women. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Are people oh. still, is that still, sorry. I'm not on the internet, so. Uh, Pietro and I, I are thinking about that it right is, now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right now. That's how gender works. Um, right. <laughs> so, uh, so A Realm of One's Own is by uh, Emma Southern, who is a friend of the podcast in my heart because I love her books. I would love for her to someday be oh, a friend yeah. of the podcast via being on the podcast. Come on the podcast, Emma. Um, but you may have heard myself and Roddy 
uh, wax rhapsodic about a fatal thing happened on the way to the forum, which is the history of homicide in ancient Rome. Um, and the thing that I love about Emma Southern and about this book on women in particular, uh, because depending on how familiar you are with Roman history, you might have gone, gosh, she found 21 entire women to talk about. Because to the Romans, a, a decent woman is a woman that you never uh, see or hear from. <laughs> um, and, and my favorite thing about Emma Southern writing about ancient Rome uh, I am a noted hater of the Romans. I completely own up to this. I'm like, those guys sucked. Um, and her books are basically like, yes, but they're like a train wreck you can't look away from. <laughs> um, and she is both, I, I find her very funny, um, not in a flippant way, uh, but also she just does really good history mm. and, and, you know, is is interested in telling the reader about historiography and how history is not just, you know, you can't just say, well, history is is facts because right. A, who wrote that fact down, right. especially when it was 3,000 years ago? Ah. And and also, what does that fact mean? Right. Um, so I just really, really enjoyed reading this latest yeah. uh, from her about, because so much of it has to do with with gender and Rome and also how much we default to history from a masculine perspective, mm -hmm. sometimes understandably because that is mostly what is left. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I just, I really appreciated this latest offering from her. Um, and if you want to suddenly find yourself caring about ancient history in a way that you thought only bros did, <laughs> Go, go pick up her books and expand your mind. Mm -hmm. That's my one of my favorite things about working in a library is that it is still possible to play myself. Mm -hmm. Like, congratulations, you played yourself, you picked a book up, you broadened your horizons. I bet you feel like a sucker. <laughs> like, you know, that's I love that, that working here does not make you immune from some of the most magical experiences that our patrons have about like, oh, I, I picked this book up off the shelf and yes. it kind of changed my life. That still happens to us. Funny, but not flippant that Sounds like kind of the vibe that that author Mitchell, David Mitchell, was kind of going for too. So appreciate that. Yeah, I have something to spring on you, librarians, uh, and don't worry if you don't know the answer. But I had a local author who is working on a book, and it's about I don't know. It's roughly two hundred fifty to three hundred pages. It's a full book, mm -hmm. but it's only detailing the events of 24 hours of his life and he was like i wonder where that would go if it were in the library and i was like i have no idea sir because that's almost biographical but it is and it, you are going to recount the facts but it is just the one day is it memoir yeah that was yeah, my memoir. that was yes, my it's first memoir right yeah, yeah so or, that would go that would be a drew problem yeah no oh. that would be a ph or like oh, I, I am i am biographies oh do you not put them in the same place no we do not pardon okay. me because I, I read our copy of spare and definitely thought it had a biography sticker on the side and i would count spare as a memoir no oh no 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 spare under and again, this is open to interpretation. Sure, yes, sure. This is sort of like you pulling pulling things into the 200s of out of folklore. Sure, because yeah. you know that's better. In my version of biography land, a biography is something that tells of the continuity of a life. Okay. So it begins right. early and it goes up to the present. Right. And it is only relevant for people who are either one, public figures, mm -hmm. two, have completed something of historical value that will be remembered in the future, mm -hmm. or three, are a direct product of a historical event going on right now, which is why books written by the Duggars end up in biography. They are a product <laughs> of a historical moment <laughs> that happened. Yes. Memoirs, on the other hand, yeah. in my world, and Pietro, you can disagree with me or correct me as you see fit, okay. are often written by non-historical people. Right. Cover one moment in my life. I had a very interesting child, and this is how I raised that interesting child. Yeah, right. Or um, are written in such a way that they are not tied to any specific political, sociological, or historical event that somebody would be cross-referencing and looking for a specific story about. And dear listener, you just got... The mic is on a stand, but it could be dropped right <laughs> no, now. No, I was just going to say, you just got basically an insider's view to what uh, cataloging class in yes. library school is Love like. It. The closest I have ever seen 
graduate library students come to exchanging blows um, precisely because so much of it is open to interpretation. And before you know it, people are slamming books on desks and saying you can't handle the truth and we're just, you know, yeah, so thank you. I it should be mentioned, don't collect youth biographies. Mm-hmm. Uh that belongs to my esteemed colleague Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um and you don't really get youth memoirs. Mm-hmm. Um or if you do, we just pitch them in biography because sure. it's a broader net for children doing right. book reports. Book reports. Um but right. I learned a new thing today. I do remember that being one of my first questions when I was shelving in a library. It's like, why is this in biography versus the general nonfiction collection? And to your friend, I would say maybe we would need a little bit more information. Like, are they a judge? Are they somebody that works in a bowling alley? Or like, is this somebody who is a poet? So because that could determine where we'd want to place They're an unpublished poet who works in a bowling alley (laughs) is what they are. Some, another element is how did they get to 250 words out of one day? Is there something experimental going on yeah. here with the writing? And if so, does that lend itself to, are we thinking of this more? Autofiction. Autofiction. Mm. Ding, ding, ding. Autofiction, exactly. yes. I was thinking of Karl Uwe Nausgar, yeah. actually, when you're talking about okay. stretching their, his life is in several thousand books at this point it would seem and everything is equally detailed now uh we've reached the point where i think we're getting too library for our (laughs) listeners and we're gonna wrap it up right there thank you pietro drew and mary grant for joining me it's been a delight jeff on this podcast you will have a list of all the titles we talked about in our show notes of course this is a little too quiet it's the ferndale library podcast and it's brought to you by the friends of the ferndale library you could find more information and maybe even join. You should join uh, if you go to ferndalefriends.org. Thank you to John Duffy for giving us music to open and close each episode. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And please show some love to that new nonfiction section. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>